0: Today is August the 20th, 2020, and this is episode 2716 of the Survival Podcast. It is a Thursday, and we're going to do a roundtable discussion today. I'm calling it a roundtable because I've picked about half the topics myself, and about half the topics are more conventional listener feedback topics, things that people have emailed me and submitted content about. Remember, if you'd like to email me content that's show-related, the way to do that, send an email to jack at com. A lot of times people seem to think I have like some secret Secondary email, trust me, I have one email that I have other email addresses, they all go to the same hole They all go to the same place Now the thing you want to do Is you want them to go into the special folder The special folder is the place where no matter what happens I will eventually find it And the way you do that is put TSPC, TSPC for the survival podcast In the subject line Like it's a word, by itself Like an acronym, which it is And then question for Jack, comment for Jack Jack, you're a jerk, whatever you want to put in there uh, you do that, and I will find it. Even if it goes into spam, I will fish it back out, and eventually I'll read it. I definitely cannot put everything on the air. Maybe 5% of what comes in goes on the air. But I'd say 80% of what comes in ends up like distributed on social media and things like that, one way or another. And all of it impacts the way that I present information on this show. Um, I read almost everything that comes in in full unless you write me a book, and then I don't. And if it links to an article or something like that, I click on it. I at least scan the article, and if the article seems valid or interesting to me, I read the whole article. A lot of that's going on today with the topics, but some of these are ones that I culled myself out of social media rather than was sent into me. Here's what we're gonna be talking about. Reminder on TSP 2020 workshop. It's gonna be awesome. Just real quick reminder on that today. An announcement, and here it is. I will be on live stream with Stefan Molyneux uh, about the fall of government schools at two PM Central Standard Time today. If you're listening to this, odds are that it's already past that time. I expect to get this show published and then like take a five minute break and jump on with Stefan. So that's you know, I'm pushed for time today, but I did think I'd mention it. I'm sure I'll be on his podcast feed and stuff like that afterward. I have a Facebook post today. That proves to me, anyway, that our current education system intentionally creates learning disabilities and mental disorders. And I'll explain why. And it's the way somebody thinks about something from literature that's actually interesting but is totally wrong in the way that it was actually meant. Um, I have two stories about the school system that scream at you, get your kids out of the school system now. Um, after I give you these two stories of what are going on with virtual schooling, if you don't take your kids out of school, and you have kids that are in school, I really don't know what to say. And I'll explain more when I get to that. Um, The latest potential COVID treatment... And the media shrieking in denial of the reality around it. And it has to involve the My Pillow Guy of all friggin' things. And I'm not saying it works. I'm just saying what the media is saying does not match what's going on. Uh, one look at search results will see hysterical autistic levels shrieking about something these mental midgets don't know anything about. Uh, and yet another potential treatment that I've already heard of working in the Caribbean region, given approval in Australia. I'm sure they'll shriek about that next. The CDC admits that hospital incentives drove up COVID deaths, so I'd really need to say more. How might a campground go about operating as a club to avoid certain regulations and things like that because it's a private members-only club? Talk about that in a bit. What it means if cash is killed off and what you can do about it. And a little little hint at something coming up on the air. Uh, How and why I'm retooling my indoor uh, vertical hydroponics farm. A listener who's part of the COVID vaccine trials reports his reasoning and results so far, uh, crops for tr- crops for and troubleshooting of a smelly wicking bed, and the best use for cold layer ducks. Cold means, well, you ain't laying no more eggs, you gots to go, gots to go, gots to go to graduation center, which means you're going to be made into meat. We'll have all of that more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and get a quote of the day to lead off today. Since I'm going to beat up on the education system, I'm going to be on with stuff on about education. And we just did a great session on education last night uh, with uh, the Unloose the Goose group in episode 6 of ULG. I have an education quote from one of my favorite people of all time, Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. He's always been good at saying a lot with a little, only a few words here. I never let schooling interfere with my education. Man, I don't know that I can make the point better, and I don't need, know that I need to add more to it. But I would just point out, you're probably a person that listens to podcasts. Most of my listeners listen to not just my podcasts, but other podcasts. You may get some entertainment value out of them, but I think most of the time you're looking for information. That means it's education. You are willingly educating yourself on a daily basis without anybody making you. Your children don't need to be forced to learn either. More on that in a bit. Uh, Again, I just want to remind you, uh, TSP 2020 is coming. I'm getting a lot of interest in it. We are taking things up a notch. I covered all the cool things we're going to do with it yesterday, so I'm not going to take up five minutes of the show again with that. But I'll just say it's going to be awesome, and if you want to come, do not miss the sign-up hour. That's 10 a.m. Central Standard Time on September the 12th, 2020. I am guessing, based just on the interest level, that this will sell out within an hour. So, make sure to stay tuned and pay attention and be ready to go to the survivalpodcast.com probably a few minutes before 10 a.m. on the 12th. Uh, again, that's central time. That's my time zone. Uh, again, I will be on a live stream with Stefan Molyneux. That should be really cool. We're going to talk about the fall of government school. And this is already making it worth being on Parlor uh, where you can parlay with me. That's why I decided to stop dealing with the um, pronunciation thing. I'm going to call it Parlor. That's what the guy that invented it calls it. And then you parlay on Parler. So that's that's how I'll be saying it from now on with no further explanation. But I actually hooked up with Stefan on Parlor. He posted a thing about education, the education system never returning to what it was, ever. And I said, you don't know how right you are, man. We should talk about this. And I sent him an article, and he said, hit me up on Skype, and uh, let's do this. So we're going to be on his show uh, at 2 p.m. Central. Uh, and, again, it should be on Free Domain Radio Podcast and all of that good stuff later on, assuming he doesn't hate what I have to say, which I don't think is going to happen. Uh, Now, on education, I want to move over to something that I found to just be incredibly ironic, that the person thought they were making a valid point. Um, A a very leftist individual, who I I never know why these people follow me on Facebook, but who follows me, uh, so I see what he posts too at times, Uh, said this, you know, like this, like this is the proof of everything. And this... Uh, the guy that originally posted it, looks like it was a tweet, and it was a guy named Rohan Talbot, and he says, No economist will ever come up with a better description of why being poor is so expensive than Terry Pratchett. Such a great quote. Uh, I can tell that Mr. Talbot didn't actually ever read Terry Pratchett's works in full and doesn't really know what the F he's talking about. But here's the excerpt excer- that he uh, he posted. Take boots, for example. He earned $38 a month plus allowances. A really good pair of leather boots cost $50. But an affordable pair of boots, which were sort of okay for a season or two and then leaked like hell when the cardboard gave out, cost about $10. Those were the kinds of boots Vimes always bought and wore until the soles were so thin that he could tell where he was in Ackermore Park on a foggy night by the feel of the cobbles. But the thing that was... That But the thing was that good boots lasted for years and years. A man who could afford $50 had a pair of boots that would still be keeping his feet dry in 10 years' time. While the poor man who could only afford cheap boots would have spent $100 on boots in the same time and would still have very wet feet. This was Captain Samuel Vime's boots theory of socioeconomic unfairness. Now... The interesting thing is if Mr. Talbot or Mr. Mason, who posted this thing as though it were genius, had actually read the works of Terry Pratchett, they know that Captain Samuel Vime started out very, very poor and became a captain in the police force and at that point could have afforded better boots. Instead of buying better boots, being a very noble man, he did choose to give away a lot of his money to the poor and to widows and what have you, but he spent the balance of his income on booze. Yeah. He, he never got his shit together. Well, he did eventually, but in, 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 at the time that this was written, he had, n- had not yet gotten his shit together, even though he had become a person of substantially more means. And if you can't afford the $50 boots, why are you settling for the $10 boots? Why are those the kind that he always bought? You remember Spirico's Law of Life... Always be frugal, never be cheap. I posted that in response to this to uh, Mister Mason over on uh, Facebook. It caused autistic level shrieking, as you would expect, about how being a privileged person I wouldn't understand. And I was just thinking, you're a typical SJW, you know, rich white kid that thinks white people are the problem. That that's who this person is. Again, surprise, surprise. And I I I, I just wonder how many of these people doing this fit that mold so precisely as to make a cliche. But, you know, I'm the guy that grew up with just a terrible home life. I've been on my own since just before I turned 16 years of age. You don't know my background. Stop judging my background. Stop judging anybody's background. Just because they don't agree with you doesn't mean that their background was one of privilege. Again, I find all the people shrieking the most are the most privileged people among us. Yes, my life's good now. And you know why? Because I learned that lesson of being frugal versus cheap when I was broke. And I use the concept of frugality over cheapness to improve my situation. Which, if you actually read the work of Terry Pratchett, you would find out that over time, the fictional uh, character, Captain Samuel Vimes, does pretty much the same thing. This is what happens when we take a piece and we make it fit our narrative. And this is why I say, our education system has turned into a thing that actually installs in the mind of our students a learning disability. Because if you don't have, if you, one of the see, we think of learning disabilities only as being something like a dyslexia, where the letters don't make sense or whatever. See, a learning disability, though, is when you, when you extract enough information to get what you want from the, the, the material, but you cease. So that you don't actually learn. That's actually disabled learning. Because you're in the world of confirmation bias. So this person finds a line that makes his point, and therefore it is the point. It was not the point in the book that it came out of. We're actually instructing people so that they become learning disabled and have mental disorders. When you have people who actually think that it makes sense to say there is no difference between men and women... Then you have a mental disorder. I guess it's gender dysphoria by proxy. Now, you know me, I'm a complete and total libertarian in this world. If you're a dude that wants to live as a chick, I have no problem with that. And if you look like a woman, and you talk like a woman, you dress like a woman, you act like a woman, and I meet you, and I don't know you're a guy, then I'll assume that you're a woman, and I, I don't care. And if you say, actually, I was born a man, unless we are, you know, and since I'm married, this won't happen, but unless we're about to have sex, I don't care it's not my problem but if you walk around looking like a dude and you want me to call you a woman and you don't you're not a woman and you're clearly a guy i'm sorry i'm not going to i'm not going to reinforce your gender dysphoria i don't care how you want to live that's fine and the people that think well i'm neither nor i'm gender fluid i'm 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 a male today and a chick tomorrow a, a, a woman tomorrow and then i am a z on wednesday and you should ask me my pronouns before you speak to me, don't worry, we're not having much of a conversation anyway. But that's a mental disorder. That is a, it's a fairly benign mental disorder, but when you're getting people who don't have a mental disorder to see the mental disorder is normal, you're giving them a mental disorder. And they can't perceive reality anymore. And what do you do about it? Get away from the system that's creating this. Stop thinking this is your solution because it's not your solution. And there's so many people that are in the school system still with their children. You need to get out of this system desperately. And I'm going to give you two stories right now about why you need to get out of the system and why especially, especially if your children are doing virtual learning. So they're home anyway But they're still in the state system. This is the most dangerous place I think you can be right now. Here's one example. I'm not going to read the article. You can yourself. Everything that I'm going to give you today until we get to listener questions is sourced. Um, But I'll give you a little bit of it. The title of the article, is on the Tennessee Star. Rutherford County Schools Tell Parents Not to Monitor Their Child's Virtual Classrooms. When your child is being instructed by the talking head on the TV, you are to pay no mind to it and not be involved. Here's a quote from the article. RCS strongly discourages non-student observation of online meetings due to the potential of confidential information about students being revealed. The form asks parents for their signature and warns a violation of this agreement may result in RCS removing the child from the virtual meeting. Really? So what they're saying is it's totally okay for the state to peer into your home and see what you're doing. Next story's about that. But it's not okay for you to monitor what they're doing with your child during the Zoom meeting where your child is being engaged with by your talking head teacher across the interwebs. And and let's talk about the other side of it. Where do you hear this one? How would you like if the police department, at least it wasn't CPS, the police department was sent to your home because a teacher saw BB guns in the background of your kid's room while he was attending virtual school. And stated that it broke the rules of no guns at school. Does that sound stupid? Do you think that's something that can't happen? Well, this is on PJ Media. This one I am going to read parts of it to you because there's two things going on here. One is the obvious. Teacher spying on student during virtual class sends cop to search 11-year-old's home after spotting a BB gun. Yeah, a BB gun. There's also an airsoft gun in the picture with a great big red plastic thing at the end of it. So that's obvious. And as I read this, you'll understand that. But I really want you to pay attention when I read you the part about what the mom says about when the cop came. A fifth grader got a visit from a police officer after his teacher called the report that she had seen a BB gun on the wall behind the student during a classroom video call. The boy's mother, Courtney Lancaster Sperry, a Navy veteran, is warning other parents about a lack of privacy during virtual classes after her son was targeted by a teacher who saw what she thought was a scary-looking gun hanging on the wall of the boy's bedroom. Quote, while my son was on a Zoom call, a concerned parent Subsequently, two teachers saw his property stowed and mounted a Red Ryder BB gun. You'll shoot your eye out, kid! Yeah, I added that part. In the background, Sperry wrote on Facebook, quote, he was not holding them or never intentionally showed them on video. In fact, he was oblivious to the fact they could even be seen in the background. And quote, after the teacher reported the gun, the principal, Jason Failure, who's a dick fuck, that's also my terminology, decided to call the police to report the guns and ask that the home be searched. Jason Failure, somebody should slap you with a large frozen fish. Something from the salmon species would be appropriate. The principal and teacher cited a rule stating that teachers may not bring the students may not bring guns to school and claimed it extended to virtual classrooms as well. I want you to pause there a second. I want you to pause there a second. Get your kids out of the freaking school. Do not use virtual learning for your children at home. Do not do it. They're in a way right. Because that's how twisted and screwed up our society has become. When your child is their student in your home, the area that the child is in, generally occupying, becomes school enforceable zone in your house. The vampire said to you the vampire has come to your door and knocked and said, May I come in? And you said, Why yes, vampire, please come in and go into my child's bedroom. And now the vampire is in. The vampire can't come in until you invite them in. Get out, get out, get out, get out. Out. Sperry, that's again the mom, told PJ Media the school's vice principal called her ex-husband, claiming to be checking on network connectivity. She believes the real reason for the call was to find out whose home her son was at. The vice principal ended up ended the call without leveraging the opportunity to discuss the matter, and rather was fishing for information to find out where to send the police to. The Evelyn year old in question is a boy Scout pursuing the rank of Eagle Scout as an outdoors all-boy kind of kid his mom said and his parents by the way of legal rights he is allowed to own said guns in addition to the BB guns she said her son is training in archery and enjoys shooting his airsoft guns. Sperry was understandably shocked when police pulled up in her front of her family's home. I had no idea what to think I've never been in any legal trouble whatsoever I've never had any negative encounter with law enforcement said Sperry. I had no idea. I didn't really know what to think. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to what you're about to hear. Because what you're about to hear is the reason that you need your children out of the school system so they don't turn into this woman, who's, I'm sure, a fine lady. But the psychological denial of reality while this is going on is going to shock you if you're not completely asleep at this point. Hopefully, i have waking you up. So, I answered the door. The police officer was... Very nice. He explained to me that he was coming to address an issue with my son's school, the mother told Fox Baltimore, and then explained to me that he was here to search for weapons in my home, and I consented to let them in. And then I unfortunately stood there and watched police officers enter my 11-year-old son's bedroom. The officers that responded were appalled at the call and even commented that the setup that my son has for his toys and commended him on his respect and understanding of the BB guns. Sperry wrote on Facebook. Sperry asked the principal why the issue could not have been handled privately by phone rather than sending the police. He said that was not their policy. This is, the, this is the part. Please listen to this. This programming is why your children must come out of school. This is, again, the mother speaking. The officers were more than nice, she wrote. And though they did not have a warrant, I have always been taught not only to comply but had nothing to hide and allowed them to look wherever they wanted to, end quote. I feel so violated as a parent for my child, who's standing there with police officers in his room, just to see the fear on his face, she added, and you should have never let the police into your home without a warrant, and you should have never allowed the school into your home virtually. And I'm not condemning this woman. I'm saying, learn from this. I have, I I mean, really, right? I have been always taught to not only comply, but I had nothing to hide. You don't know that. You don't know that. You don't know everything your 11-year-old Boy Scout's doing. You don't know that maybe he didn't have a little bit of weed in his dresser drawer that I'm sure sooner or later you would have come to realize was there and taken appropriate parental actions on. But in the middle of a welfare check called in by the school, that would be inviting the next vampire into your home. You already invited the first vampire, so the second vampire can do it on their behalf. That would be Child Protective Services. Now, odds are that wasn't there and there was nothing else there. But, but, it could always happen and you don't know. When I was a young parent, well not young, I was a middle-aged parent, my son was in his teens and driving. For one very stupid reason, uh, police were alerted to his car as potentially having something to do with a the burglary. They came to our house and they asked if they could search the house in his room. And I told them very, very nicely to go F off elsewhere. I was nice about it, but I basically said, F off, no, you don't come to my house with a warrant. They then proceeded to go question my minor son without counsel and without me present. And that was the day that the last little tiny rat's ass bit of trusting the police I had went away. And you know how the cops were said they were appalled that they had to even do this and it didn't make any sense? You know what? Cops are trained to lie. And And anybody that says they're not, you're full of shit, I've had cops come on the air and admit that they are trained to lie on the air. The police themselves have said, yes, we are trained to lie. So if I'm going in and I'm searching that, of course I'm going to tell you that. But you know what I'm thinking? When I'm a cop, everybody lies and everybody has something to hide. They see so much that they're convinced that everybody has something. My brother-in-law, who's a cop, could not believe when he was over at a a house I used to own that we would park our car in the street because it was going to get robbed. So if it's in my driveway it's not going to get robbed. But if I parked it at the curb so the kids can use the driveway to play basketball, it's going to get robbed. This makes no sense. He's just seen a lot of vehicles broken into. And that's the mindset they're coming from, and that's why they think this way. And I don't trust those cops that came in there. They might have, in the end, decided that, hey, you know, these people are are chill and there's nothing to worry about. But just because they came in with a pleasant mannerism, that's the first act of a con man. And every law enforcement officer that you ever deal with who's investigating you is a con man as far as you are concerned. If they're not, it won't matter. You should assume that they are. You should assume that every single word they tell you is a lie. You should assert your rights calmly and peacefully, and no one comes into your home under any circumstances without a warrant. May I ask what this is in regard to? The boy has BB guns. Can we come in and search the house? No. We'll go get a warrant. I suggest that you do. Make sure you take the picture that you have that clearly shows that their BB guns with you to the judge when he signs off on that warrant make sure he knows because I'm going to make sure he knows after he signs off on the warrant if you didn't pull your kids out of school I don't want this is, this is what the state's saying you don't get to oversee what we're doing with your children but we get to oversee your home life with your children through our camera My grandson has been doing online learning through Excellus Academy for three weeks now. He's excelling. He runs to his work first thing in the morning without being told to do so. And the total number of times he's ever been on camera with the school where they can see into his home is zero. Because it's not necessary. If he needs help from a teacher, he can reach out and get it. He doesn't have a Zoom meeting where they're taking screenshots of what's behind him and then using a ruse to track down where he's at as a physical location. That's the mark of child predators. Using confidential information to determine what location they're at. Get your kids out of the system. Get your kids out of the system. Please, for the love of God, get your kids out of the system, especially if you're in virtual learning. It's the, it's the worst mix you can have. At least when your kid goes to the school, there's a line. The kid has left the school. They're now back in your control. You're now inviting the vampire into your home. And you're already home. So all your bullshit about, but I need child daycare or whatever, it doesn't apply because they're already home. Whatever you've needed to do to, to make your child be able to be at home, if they're still at home in August and you started in March, you've done it. Please, I am I am essentially begging you at this point, because I'm telling you what's coming next. They're going to start closing the exit door. They're going to make it harder to leave. And what I really think is beneficial about a school like Excellus Academy, which is where my grandson goes, and I do not get paid to say this. I have no agreement with them whatsoever other than we're a customer. They are an online private school. I don't have a grandson who's legally being homeschooled. My grandson's attending a private school that does virtual learning. That's accredited by the same accrediting body that accredits other private schools in the state of California and the western United States. And I have these really great transcripts of all his work. And if, if you're, see, I don't live where I have to use that. But if you do, yeah, here. Here's all the transcripts. Here's everything. Because the parents have their own login. We have our own login. And we can basically see what he's doing. And if he doesn't do his work, it rats him out. Hasn't been an issue, but it's nice to know. When he was at his other grandparents, we could log in and see what session he was taking, how far he was into it, how many of the tests and work he had done that day, his progress and his grades for the day. It's designed for us to have complete and total oversight. The state wants complete and total oversight, and they don't want you paying attention. That should scare. If somebody's telling you, we want to be able to see everything going on with your child, but we don't want you looking at what we're doing with your child, and you're okay with that, you are proof of my claim that the education system is intentionally creating a learning disability and mental disorders in people. I'm going to let it go. Let's talk about the latest COVID treatment the media is shrieking in denial of reality about. Now, unfortunately, this has come out through the My Pillow dude. That doesn't help. And it went directly to the president who said, hey, if it's safe and it's good, then the FDA should approve it. Now it is being shrieked as Trump is demanding that we approve a toxin for COVID. The uh, substance is called oleandrin, and it comes from the oleander plant. It's been in trials as a medication and a supplement since about 2012. It's passed multiple safety trials, and it is used in other medicines already that are commonly used to treat things like heart conditions. But what the media is shrieking is the truth to sell a lie, which is common, and you should probably start to see the finor, the disinformation in plain sight. Oleander is a poison, and every part of the plant is a poison, and if you eat oleander, you will die. Trump wants you to die. Everything right up until the last statement was a fact. Oleander is a poison. It's very poisonous, and it will kill you if you eat it. It's so poisonous that in areas where it's commonly grown in Europe, Mediterranean, etc., this is an evergreen shrub, we grow it here in Texas, There's tons of it around. It's landscaped with all the time. You can buy it at Home Depot and Lowe's. If you eat it, it'll kill you. And where it's native, it's commonly used by people who want to commit suicide. It absolutely is a deadly, toxic plant. You know what else is a deadly, toxic plant? Foxglove. It's a beautiful flower. Gorgeous. It's grown in gardens all around the world, extensively in the southern United States. Foxglove is beautiful as a plant. It's also known as digitalis. And it saves people's lives who have congestive heart failure. It saves people's lives who have congestive heart failure. And before modern medicine, the whole herb of digitalis was used by doctors in a very careful manner that I submit to you is actually safer than the digitalis drug that's used today. And here's how I know that. Because for a while, I actually was going to Uh, to school to learn about naturopathic medicine. And I eventually stopped doing that. But I did this for over a year. And I learned all about this as an example of a whole herb being safer than a pharmaceutical drug. And it was in Andrew Weil's work that I read about it as part of my study. And what it said was, when he he's an older doctor at this point, Andrew's a fairly old man. And when he was going through his residency... They were using Digitalis a lot. There's actually other drugs that they use more for the same thing now that are considered safer and more effective. But there were three levels of side effects from Digitalis. One was very mild. The next was like nausea, vomiting, etc., and and diarrhea. And the third was almost instant death. Like if you go past stage 2, stage 3 is coming quick, and the guy's going to die. It'll kill you. It's that toxic. Well, he had seen... The first stage of overdose of symptoms. And he had seen a patient die from a full overdose, stage three. And he realized that, you know, he's like in his third years of residency or something like that, that I have never seen anybody vomit or get diarrhea or nausea or anything on digitalis. So he starts asking all the other doctors, like the you know the chiefs, or, you know, the residents, etc. And it, they nobody's ever seen stage two, and nobody knows why it's even in the physician's desk reference as a side effect. They can't figure out why. No, nobody knows why. So he finally finds this old-ass codger doctor, you know, that's like old as he is now back then. And uh, so this guy's been around since almost the turn of the century at this point. And he says, you know, what's the deal? And this doctor says, oh. Let me explain it to you. He says, we didn't used to use pills. We actually used the plant. We used the foxglove plant. And we would give a patient a very, very small amount, and we would see if they got a therapeutic effect or a side effect. And if they got the therapeutic effect, that was the therapeutic dose. That was the amount that we would give them, and we would keep them on that dose and monitor them. And once we determined that dose was safe for them and effective, then they could actually just take it like they do a pill now. If it didn't work, we gave them a little bit more, and we gave them a little bit more, and we would either figure out that we could get a therapeutic effect in the individual patient, we could go high enough to actually help them, or that we couldn't. And as soon as we started to see side effects, especially if they got nausea or vomiting or some of these other effects, we would back down to where they didn't get the side effects anymore. And when we were doing that, we would determine if that was therapeutic or not. If it was therapeutic, we kept doing it. And if it was not therapeutic, if it didn't help with their congestive heart failure, we we tried another thing that wasn't suitable for them. And Andrew asked this old doctor, so how many people died when you were doing that from overdose? And he said, none, zero. Absolutely nobody died from it. And the reason nobody died from it is because that method precluded killing somebody with it, that very small incremental increase because they knew they had to. They couldn't just... The book says I can give 50 milligrams. (laughs) Now, how does that apply to this oleander shit? If you go eating oleander, and God forbid somebody's going to do this, some retard is going to go eat a a freaking bowl full of oleander and kill themselves, and they're going to blame Trump for it, even though Trump has said like one sentence on this thing, which again was, well, if it's good, then the FDA should approve it. How you object to that? I'll tell you how. The school system has created people with with learning disabilities and mental disorders. If you object to the statement of, if it's good, the FDA should approve it, then you have a mental disorder and a learning disability both. You have to. Now, the thing about oleandrin is it's not the whole plant. It is a specific isolate from oleander, And almost every drug that's ever used on anybody ever, specifically drugs that come from plants, come from toxic plants. Plants that are consumed in enough quantity are dangerous. Again, foxglove being a perfect example. And the reason I use it is a lot of other plants are not that deadly, or they take an awful lot to cause a toxic reaction that they get these extracts from. But foxglove is, if anything, more deadly than oleander. And yet we get one of the greatest life-saving discoveries of of, of medicine, even when it was used as a whole herb of all time, because congestive heart failure is bad shit. So this is just another example of the media going berserk, and they don't know anything about it. I have for you um, kind of a, a, a clinical study it's not an RCT or anything like that. It's not actually being used on patients, but the company that's making the substance, that's done multiple submissions to the FDA, that's had multiple treat, uh, uh, safety tests done. That's on the edge of like the stage three, where you can release it as a general product. Has this out where they've actually tested it in regard to COVID and found that it is both prophylactic and it is a treatment for COVID but not in a clinical test in humans yet, only in a laboratory situation. So it may not work. I'm not saying this works. I have no idea if this works. I do know that just because it comes from a toxic plant doesn't mean it's poisonous, and it doesn't mean it won't work. Of course, the media has already determined that you are too stupid to have this information provided to you. I'm asking you when you're going to realize that this same pattern repeats itself over and over Anything that could be a treatment or a cure that's not a $1,000 drug that only works 30% of the time or an untested vaccine that we're rushing through is wrong. And everything that is a $1,000 drug that only works 30% of the time, maybe, or an untested vaccine that we're rushing through in one year, which usually takes 10 years to do, is completely safe and you're a nut if you don't agree. I'm sorry, I don't care if the vaccine ends up being safe and works. This concept that, for instance, hydroxychloroquine that's been around for 70 years is dangerous... Even though we use it on people with all kinds of compromised problems, all the time, for, for decades, safely. But this vaccine is completely safe. It doesn't even exist yet, and it's already completely safe. They're still doing trials on it, it's already completely... Like, you, if you if if you listen to that and you take any validity from it, if you trust the source of such a thing, you have a learning disability... The, the, the government intentionally put in your mind so you would trust things because the right head said the right thing that you were supposed to believe on the right box. Please stop this shit, right? So and I got another one for you. Ivermectin. Ivermectin is something that anybody that's ever taken care of livestock will know. It's a wormer. It's uh, it's often used uh, to prevent heartworms in canines, though some dogs have a genetic condition a specific gene that it's deadly if you give them ivermectin. Don't just go giving your dogs anything with ivermectin in it without having them tested for this gene, and then there's other things you can do for heartworms. But this will be another one the media will... If Trump, Trump needs to shut up about COVID when it comes to treatments. He needs to never utter a word about any potential treatment with COVID because we already know what the media is going to do, and you almost wonder if that's coordinated too. Because I I, I do believe that, like, Trump has friends that work for, like, you know, Gilead and Pfizer and Bayer. I, I, I believe that would probably be a reasonable thing to think that a billionaire would have billionaire friends that work for billionaire drug companies. Right? So maybe that's coordinated counter. I don't know. But anytime the man says anything, it's wrong. And it's dangerous and you shouldn't do it. So shut up. But ivermectin, this is what I know about ivermectin. They started using it in the Caribbean, as soon as the first reports about it being potentially useful came out, this is anecdotal, but here's an exact you know representation it's not an exact translation, but it's exactly what happened. I got an email from a guy about two months ago, maybe a month and a half ago and he said, "Jack, I started using your quercetin and zinc and vitamin D etc protocol as soon as you said it in March." and I, I, I got it from my whole family and we have family down in the Caribbean." And so I, they couldn't get it, so I got a whole bunch of it, and I sent it down to them. And all of the people in that group, except one, took it. One refused to take it. And the only person that ended up with at least, because they don't test people who are asymptomatic in a lot of these other countries, especially like the Caribbean. It's not exactly like the Caribbean you go to on vacation, just to be clear. Um... That person who did not think it was worth taking the quercetin zinc and and other things was the only person out of the group that ended up with COVID, and a fairly serious case of it. Not quite hospital, but... And they had some risks. Well, in the Caribbean, they'd already started just using ivermectin because you can go buy it like at a feed store on your own. And I don't know the protocol or the doses, and I don't know anywhere near as much about this as I do hydroxychloroquine or my own supplement protocol that I came up with. But I know that what his response was, it probably saved a guy's life, or at least kept him out of the hospital. So I'm sure the media will start shrieking about ivermectin being dangerous and something that you use to worm cows, which is, you know, one is not necessarily make the other true. Uh, If Trump says the word, it will immediately become the worst idea ever. But right now, general practitioners in Australia have been given the green light to use it as a therapy. A triple ivermectin protocol is what it's called. So I have a link to that if you want to learn more about it. But can we can we stop pretending there's nothing that can be done about this except a vaccine or a $1,000 a dose freaking antiviral that doesn't really work? Can we stop doing that? Because how many of these, like we, we have the, the guy that calls it COVID silver bullet, that's an inhaled cortical steroid, that is what's used on patients who can't breathe well to help them breathe well, being used for a disease that makes it hard to breathe. I shared an, an interview with that doctor. Facebook threatened to ban my account and silenced me and took that post down. That happened to me yesterday, even though I did the post like three weeks ago. They finally found it, I guess. And it was inside a private group, by the way, where they did it. So this man, this is what this doctor said. I couldn't do hydroxychloroquine. It was hard to get. The pharmacies wouldn't fill the prescription. I had patients who were high risk. And I knew they were going to end up in a hospital. And they were having trouble breathing. So I simply asked myself as a doctor, when you have a patient that can't breathe, what do you give them? And And I can't remember the name of this inhaled steroid, but he said, I give them this. And it usually works. Well, shit, I'll give them this and see if it works. So he gave it to them. And it has kept every single one of his patients he's given it to out of the hospital. He's had over 300 patients use the protocol, and he's had zero in the hospital. The numbers would dictate that that should not be the case. It's not a randomized controlled double-blind placebo study. But it's also a, a medication that is generally recognized as safe and used with people with all types of conditions that we would look at as comorbidities for COVID all the time. And it's considered one of the safest medications you can prescribe a person. And unlike a lot of people who rely on it right now for other things, they would only rely on it for a very short window of time. So if a medication has side effects after long-term use, but you're only going to use the medication short-term, that makes it safer. And if it's safe for the long-term use and the side effects are negligible or worth the risk, Then saying it all of a sudden becomes not safe to you short term doesn't pass any logical sense. And if you believe that it does, again, our school system has given you a learning disability and created a mental disorder in your brain. That doesn't make, there's no world that makes any sense in. So every single thing that has any potential to help must be MF'd by the media as soon as it pops up, even when other countries approve it for use. And it's not like Australia is like the backwaters of the Caribbean. Australia has a very modern medical system. In many ways, I would say it might be preferable to be in a hospital in Australia right now than a hospital in the United States. There's a lot of other things about Australia's government that I have no desire to be any part of. The lockdowns they're doing like in Melbourne are just stupid. Nazi level. The Chinese are like, holy shit, we thought we were bad. But the medical system in Australia is a very advanced Modern medical system. If they say that this treatment is worth using and safe, and hey, you know, the worst thing that's going to happen is it doesn't work, then it probably is safe to use. It's just unbelievable to me. How about this? The CDC now admits that hospital incentives drove up COVID deaths. Yeah. Remember when people like me were saying this in like April and May? We were saying that, hey, um... This is a very dangerous thing that they put in these incentives where hospitals get more money if they take a COVID patient in than if they don't, they take a patient in who's not technically a COVID patient because that puts more people in the hospital that maybe don't really belong there, right? And that if you take people and you throw them on a ventilator simply because you get more money for it, people that may not have died who really shouldn't have been on a ventilator end up on ventilators. That that will happen. Well, when I said that, I was told to sh- shut up, flatten the curve, you know, wear my mask. I'm a conspiracy theorist. The CDC says today. I have the article that you can look at for yourself. That COVID deaths were driven up by hospital incentives. I I I, I don't know what more a person could want. For proof, I, I really don't. I, the CDC, who is supposed to be this vaulted authority, we are all supposed to bow down to and kiss the ass of, admits that hospital incentives drove up COVID nineteen deaths. I, the articles on Mercola, which of course will be attacked ad hominem, but it doesn't change what the CDC is saying. Read it for yourself if you want to. Rhode Island, Rhode Island has been caught. Increasing the to- COVID death number by at least ten percent. In other words, ten percent of the deaths that came out of uh, Rhode Island were not COVID deaths. Patient may have had COVID, may not have. Depends. But the cause of death is like clearly not COVID. That's ten percent. You know, when you're talking like 150,000 deaths, that's 15,000 people. That changed the. It, it, now I know that not all 150,000 are Rhode Island. Do you think Rhode Island's the only one that's done this? Again if you believe well only only Rhode Island did it well Pennsylvania got caught doing it red-handed months ago okay only Rhode Island and Pennsylvania oh New Jersey got caught doing it Oh well it was only you know it was only Rhode Island Pennsylvania and New Jersey um New York got caught doing it okay it was only Rhode Island New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York Connecticut got to, got doing it well it was all like now it, and you and then you look at that list of states and in your top five for deaths in the whole country, New York, Connecticut, New Jersey. So three of the states that are in the top five for the most deaths all have been caught padding the death number. And by the way, they'd never, with the exception of Pennsylvania, even though they were caught, I don't think the numbers were ever actually corrected. I think New York, after they caught, added more even after they were caught. So all of a sudden, this starts to add up to a significant number of people in the total death count that should have not been in there. Then you have a whole bunch of people that you can say, yeah, they did, but... And here's my question for you. Are we doing something really, really sick? Really demented to old people? Because I've asked this question of doctors, and I've said, I need you to separate COVID from this. I need an honest answer, and I've gotten the same answer from every doctor I've asked this. The year is 2016. A patient of 83 years of age is living in a nursing home and is bed bound. That, pa- that patient gets a respiratory illness of some sort and begins to decline seriously and severely in health. That patient gets pneumonia, and it becomes evident that that patient is likely to die. Is that patient taken to a hospital and are heroic methods like a ventilator used to save that patient's life. And every single doctor said, unless a family member, a proxy, demanded it, absolutely not. No. We let that patient die. We accepted that patient's cause of death was a respiratory illness, but really the cause of death was old age. Now, I'm not saying everybody that died of COVID, that qualifies that way. But a massive number do. A massive number, dude. 47% of everybody in the country that died of COVID was in some form of elder care facility. 47% were in an elder care facility of some kind. One more time, 47%. Elder care facility patients are 0.3% of the total population of the United States. Right now, of 330 million people are in an elder care facility. 0.3% of the total population makes up 47% of the death rate of COVID. I don't think a single one of those patients, I don't think a single one of those patients should be in the generalized death numbers for COVID. I think they can be out there with an asterisk, but the median life expectancy once you go into one of those facilities is four months. Again, we can go back to 2019 and back before there was a COVID, and that's these are numbers from then. How sick is it to take a person from an elder care facility and put them on a ventilator when they had a life expectancy of less than four months because they have any rest? I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's the flu. I don't care if it's the Djibouti freaking virus. I don't care what it is. Why would you do that? I'll tell you why you would do that. Two reasons. Number one, you've got to get him out of the elder care facility. You have to. This is a Kobayashi Maru. The hospitals are being put into this unwinnable situation. So now I'm a hospital. Uh, The elder care facility says absolutely correctly, this person must leave. They are a clear risk to staff. And it's a clear risk to, like, the most vulnerable population we have. Like, anybody with COVID in an elder care facility needs to leave now. Okay, where are they going to go? The hospital. Okay, you send them to the hospital. Hospital's going bankrupt. Hospital's going bankrupt. Absolutely, Because they're, they can't do any of their elective procedures, whatever. They're going bankrupt. I have a patient now who's going to die. I get tens of thousands of dollars more if I... If I sedate them and put them on a ventilator and it it might work and it's generally recognized as a standard of care what do you think is going to happen? A significant portion of them are going to go on a ventilator and their life is extended in a sedated state separated from their loved ones who cannot visit them when all we would have done last year in the same scenario is let the person peacefully pass and treat them so they didn't suffer but now that it's a different disease, we have a totally... this Again, if you think that makes sense, if you don't find that cruel, then you are a product of a system who has educated you in a way that has given you a learning disability. Why would we treat the person any differently in the same exact situation just because the name of the infection changed? And we're doing it and we're doing it, and I've confirmed it. And I haven't gone down the rabbit hole with you guys on it yet because it is it is incredibly disturbing when you really think about what's going on. And most of the people they're doing it to, these are not people of means. They're impoverished people. Their survivors are impoverished people. They're in state nursing homes. They don't have a DNR. They don't know what a DNR is. They're not even being told that they have... That ability to let grandma go. And they're not being told that last year, if your grandma got influenza B or influenza A, or the cold, because the cold kills people in this situation all the time. The common cold, both rhino and coronavirus versions thereof, kill the elderly in these facilities. They're the main cause of the final part of their death. It's what causes pneumonia in them. They're not being told, last year we would have just suggested otherwise. not being told that. They're saying, do you want us to try to save them? Oh, by the way, the government's picking up the bill. While they're in a guilt-ridden state because they can't be there. What do you think they're going to say? There's a victimization going on here that is unbelievable. All right. Let's talk about something else. Um, I did a show a while back talked about how maybe some businesses need to operate as private clubs. And by operating as a private club, there's a whole slew of regulations and things like that that you can get around, including maybe some of these regulations to say you can't be in business because of COVID. And I had a uh, listener write in who has a campground. I'm not going to read his email. I'm going to try to go quick through the rest of the show today. Um, But he said, how might you do that with a campground? Okay, I'm back to what I said during that show. You need a lawyer that understands your local and state laws in relation to what you're doing and to how private clubs work in your area, and what the best structure of a club looks like for the most legal indemnity. Okay, And I'm going to continue saying that whenever this comes up. But I'll give you some ideas that I have. The problem with a campground with a membership model could be that generally people don't go camp at the same place a lot. So if we have a social club where we drink scotch and smoke cigars and play pool and bullshit about the world, that's a place that if it's nearby, you probably go there frequently. Now, there are private clubs for campgrounds and timeshares and all kinds of stuff like that. But generally, from a small business standpoint, we're talking about a single location. So if Bill wants to stay at your campground, having to be a member may or may not work. Like I said, I remember being in Salt Lake City years and years. This is years before TSP. It was a business thing. And I had to go to Salt Lake. And this is back when I was a big Scotch drinker and a cigar smoker. And most of my clients kind of fit that as well. And I wanted a place with a really nice steakhouse. Or I could have a really high-end nice scotch, and as bad as Seattle, I'm sorry, uh, Salt Lake is for restrictions on stuff like this. When at this time it was worse, right? This is like mid 90s, and um, I wanted to be able to sit back with like a nice Fuente and have a very long discussion with these clients, that type of thing. So I started looking. It was not looking well. There were places it could be done, but not kind of all in one place. Well, I found this restaurant that said it was a members-only club. And they had exactly what I wanted. They had a smoking room, and they had a humidor, and they had a great selection of scotches, beautiful steaks. So I called the restaurant and said, How, pray tell, does one become a member afraid of the number I would hear? And they said, Well, are you going to be a guest at the hotel? I said, What hotel? And they said, The one in which we exist, you exist in a hotel, you might want to put that on your website. And then I, it was on their website. But it was a 90s website, so you know things were different then. And, and it turned out that if I was a guest at the hotel, I had an automatic free membership in the exclusive club. That There were exclusive club members from, from Salt Lake who were members of this club for this very reason. So they had both the active member and the temporary member. That model might somehow work for your campground. You could charge a token amount to be a member, and then there's a then the members have fees for all the services within the membership. And you could the only thing you would have to do, in my opinion, again, you're you got to have a lawyer for this, to make it a true members-only club is refuse business to anybody who's not a member. So if somebody walks in off the street and says, "I would like a campsite." Are you a member? No. Would you like to become one? No, I would not. I'm sorry we cannot give you a campsite. We are a members-only facility. We are a private facility for use by our members only. That That's what you have to do. So there's there's multiple ways you could do that. You could have something akin to the Unicard we used to have here in Texas. Maybe you reach out to other campgrounds in the area and you create some kind of enveloping membership. Does that work? Is that the right thing? I don't know. Lawyer. Okay. Um, another way would be to actually s- sell every campsite to members as a share, running more like a co-op. So Site 001 is sold to Bill. Bill owns Site 001. He owns that site. Now, the, a, 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 a umbrella corporation owns the whole thing. He owns it as a share inside the LLC or the LLP. See how that works? And... But as a member in the co-op, Bill pays a fee for the maintenance of the location. But then what you have to turn around and do is you almost run it like a hip camp or something. When that site's not being used and somebody comes in and rents it, they're renting it from Bill, not from you. But see, then that person is not a member, so I don't know that that works as well. But that might actually be a kick-ass way to run a campground. And you also have to ask yourself, like, How many of these regulations actually apply to campgrounds? Or could the campground just be a campground, right? And it's outdoors, and the spaces are far enough away for this social distance nonsense. And then if there's a facility there where people can go have a drink or something, the facility is independently member-owned, right? And it's for members only. Well, can I go over to the cantina, right? I don't know how that works, right? Liquor laws, everything are different. But, well, are you a member, No. Would you like to become one? No. Then you can't go there. In fact, you can't go across that line because that's the member's only area. You have a campsite. I think there's a lot of ways this could be done, but I think this is something you sit down with a lawyer and then you understand, just because I throw an idea out there doesn't mean it works for everybody. And a lawyer can help you walk through the regulations and how much do I have to pay to play this way, and does that buy me enough to make it worth doing? And the, how much I have to pay to play is like legal fees, filing fees, permit fees, etc. It's also the cumbersome nature and does it cost me business that I would have otherwise had. And you have, to, you have to factor that all in and see if it makes sense. But that's how to think about it. And that's the best way I can go. Um, somebody also wrote in to me about cash being killed off as part of COVID. It's no question the government's wanted a cashless society forever. And cash is a dying entity. Cash has been dying since the 50s. It's about. It's really the 60s. About the 60s, the government figured out that the technology to have a completely cashless society existed, and the little bit that was necessary soon would exist, and it became a dream. It became a dream to make every single transaction in the country electronic or electronically recorded. So I'm going to give you an in-between that might come up at some point with cash. But that was, that was the goal. That was the goal. And so what they did is they just started doing everything they could, and they worked with the banks, who actually run the government in the first place, by the way. Because if you think your politicians run the government, you, I, I can't even begin to explain to you how flawed that reasoning is. The banks own everybody, and then everybody that the banks own owns the government, The first layer of those owned by the banks own the government. So when you look at a giant corporation, like in the drug world, Pfizer, right? if you look in the agricultural and drug world, now Bayer, which now owns Monsanto, those companies and corporations, they say they're owned by shareholders, but if you track down the majority shareholders long enough, they either are the banks or their ability to purchase the controlling interest is funded by the banks. And when one hand gives money to the other, the one that's doing the giving is always above the one that's doing the receiving, and it's the one that's always in control. So the banks own the oligarchy, and, and think of the banks as like the primo oligarchy, and then the oligarchy owns the government, and then you elect the government that's owned by those two stratified layers. That's, that's where we are in all of this. And so all of those entities agreed that it would be great to get rid of cash. Because how do the banks make how do the banks make their money? They print it through lending. Lending is not giving money. When you lend money to me, you take money you have and you give it to me. That's what people are taught and conditioned to believe that banks do. Banks do not do that. If a bank is holding to make it really simple, if a bank is holding ten dollars, just ten dollars, they can loan nine. That doesn't mean they hold $1 and loan 9 That means they keep the $10 and they loan 9 now, if Now, if your mind hurt when I said that, you haven't heard me talk about this before, and it's cognitive dissonance. It's so simple that it's repellent to the mind. I'm going to say it again. If I'm the bank of Jack and the world is shrunk into what money means, and a penny is a billion dollars, Right? and I have $10, I can loan you up to $9 if I think you're a good credit risk, and I keep the $10. The $10 is my reserve against the 9 that you owe me back, and I've basically used your promise of repayment to print $9 off of $10. i have now made $19 come into existence. And that I don't want to get deep into it, but that cycle keeps going. So the banks actually make money whenever money is lent or moves. And the more money that's traceable when it moves, the more money the banks make. So the banks don't like cash. The banks have never liked cash. We believe the banks like it. They don't. I go to the bank and they give me cash. They're not happy about that. They prefer that you took a picture of your check deposited that picture, tore the check up and threw it away, once the deposit was confirmed, and did everything with your phone and your credit card and your debit card. Oh, isn't that what most people already do? Yes, because that's what they did. We're largely cashless already. The M3 is a number that you know, you'll never hear that in school because they'd rather give you you know, learning disabilities and mental disorders than actually teach you anything. The M3 money supply is all the money that exists in any form, anywhere in the United in the form of United States dollars. It's in your checking account, it's under your pillow, it's in l- loans and agreements. Okay it's all the money. the sum total, the total quantity of dollars. It's actually a hard number to even find anymore. M2 and M1 are lesser fr- fractions thereof. okay? M3, if you want to know the effects of inflation and money moving and and multiplying inside the system, M3 is the number to look at. Most people, if you say M3 money supply, they don't even know what I just told you. They don't know what you now know. They don't know anything. Of that M3, if you've never heard this before, I want you to actually, in your head at least, say an answer. What percentage of the M3 do you think is available in cash right now? If we took everybody's cash... The bank, you, the Rockefellers, everybody's cash money. And we put it in one pile and said, here's how much cash there is. And here's the total number of dollars that exist. What percent is in cash? The number, 3%. We are already 97% cashless. And if you think about it, most of us don't use a lot of cash. Do you pay your bills in cash? Some of you do, but most of you don't. The people that are most likely to be using large amounts of cash, when you say large amounts, I don't mean like a total number, I mean you know, 80% of what they do is in cash, are Dave Ramsey's disciples that are working through their debt because he's using an envelope system to keep you from overspend. Otherwise, most Americans, and if you're on welfare and you get EBT cards and and whatever, you, you almost never have cash. And if you're really wealthy, you almost never have cash. It's only a small portion of the middle class that even regularly use cash anymore. So they've already done it, and COVID is killing the dying. So can COVID push the last 3% over? Probably. Probably, and the longer they drag it out, the longer they avoid using effective treatments, using lockdowns to slow the spread so the same number of people get sick and the same number of people die, but we deal with it for longer and screw up the economy The more they can justify just cash is not worth it anymore. And then every single dollar, every single penny that's ever spent is traceable and taxable. And they'll have a new tax system where it will be instantly taxed. The solution is cryptocurrency. It's why you should have some. And I see a world eventually where people stop trading dollars into cryptocurrency. I think the window to actually buy cryptocurrency with dollars in any form that looks like it does today where you can you know, just buy a you know, wire transfer or whatever is going to close. The only way you'll be able to do it, you'll have to go to somebody like, like like, illegal drugs, right? Hey, man. Okay, Bitcoin. Yeah, how much do you want, man? Well, I want 100 bucks worth. All right. Well, here's how much you get. Hey, man, Bitcoin is priced at this. Yeah, but you know, you want Bitcoin, you have to pay a 10% premium. And that'll be subject to like money laundering laws and shit like that. They've already put people in prison for doing that. That's what it's going to be. What it's going to end up being is you want Bitcoin. You need to sell something, a service or a product that somebody with Bitcoin or Dash or Pirate Chain, which is somebody we might be talking to soon and whatever, like who has it, wants it. And that's why I think like the places that you're going to see thrive, are like this is part of why I'm on library TV, LBRY.TV. Um, they're using their LBRY coin. It seems very difficult to buy. But there's a marketplace within the library that uses it. The the, the token has a function. And, a, and, and it has a net value gain in return for providing value to others. It's not perfect. I'm not saying that. But it makes sense. It works. It is liquid into cash, but... I mean bitcoin is strong enough that what somebody needs to do and there may already be one that I'm just not aware of that fully functions is develop a platform that makes any cryptocurrency that's that anybody wants now it's clearly library is a cryptocurrency people want because it's the only thing you can use inside a library and there's millions of users using it all the time there but any cryptocurrency with a demand can be fungible into just bitcoin The the dollars never touch this, and you keep dollar coins out of this thing, so it's not the government's business, even if they think it is. It's completely decentralized. Waves was supposed to be this. I don't know if it ever became it. And make it fungible into Bitcoin, and don't worry about it. But one of the reasons I'm so big on on crypto is I I think the window will close on it. And I think initially it will hurt, because if it's not easy to go from Bitcoin to cash... But do you need to go from Bitcoin to cash or do you need to buy things, pay for things, and hold value with something other than dollars? So I think that long-term, going to electronic cash in, in the world will make cryptocurrency even stronger. And it will get to a point where they will not be able to do anything about it. Like, there will come a time when, I'm sorry, it's impossible. You'll have two economies. You'll have a government economy and a crypto economy and it will become so mixed the the crypto economy will become so mixed and so it will become impossible to piece things back together eventually and we'll have privacy networks and privacy coins on privacy networks and we'll be able to make what we want shareable shareable I I was going to say public but I don't believe that will happen it's already that way, right? But we'll be able to make data disclosable to those we want it to be disclosed to and not to anybody else. And it, this all goes back to something that's very hard for people to accept. Money is not money. Money does not exist. Money is nothing but a ledger that accounts for the value of the exchange. That's, that's I'm going to leave it at that today because that's pretty high philosophical shit. Uh, I was asked, what am I going to do with retooling my vertical hydroponics farm? I'm working on that right now. Um, Those of you that hadn't seen it, it was uh, three trays, two deep trays and one shallow tray at the top in a 48-inch by two-foot rack, right? Four by two stainless steel you know, baking rack, tile rack. And um, I've just determined that instead of doing flow through on a timer, that ebb and flow really works better. And I have some other things I want to do that will not be easy to explain until I get it done. The problem is, I'm trying to make it self-contained. And I found that a 40-gallon Rubbermaid Commander tub will fit in the bottom shelf and work. But when you try to ebb and flow three trays, you take a ton of fluid out of there. So what I'm working on now is figuring out kind of the math behind holding some water in the two deep trays so that I only have to bring the level up a couple inches to get the ebb and flow effect. But I'm going to be doing it with where you have one flow in and one flow out, instead of a siphon, which is what I've been doing, and I have videos out on how I've done this. It's how the top tray works already. And basically, your, your, your bulkhead where the fluid comes in is flush with the bottom, and your bulkhead where the fluid runs out while it's cycling is elevated with a stand-up pipe to as high as you want the fluid to come to. The pump kicks on, it starts filling up, it gets to the standpipe height of the overflow. It starts overflowing, and that sets the, the, the high tide line. When the pump kicks off, the fluid drains back through the pipe that delivered the fluid. It goes back through the pump. And you can put a little vent valve and vent for for some oxygen down in your tank, and that'll make it come out even faster, so it drains even faster. Like I said, my problem is when I tested this, one, I had some leaks and I have to fix those. Um, But when I tested it, it worked, but there was a huge drop in the reserve tank. And so the tank will fit, even though it's 40 gallons, it's not like a 40-gallon cylinder, it's kind of wide and shallow relative that the water level came way down to the top of the pump to where you would have to be adding fluid to it almost daily instead of weekly. So what I'm thinking is if I can hold enough in those upper tanks, then I have less fluctuation. And i got to come up with some way that that won't grow a bunch of algae. So now I'm back to putting some type of cover. But I'm probably also going to go to, instead of the little 2-inch cups hanging, um, just setting 3- or 4-inch cups, just setting them in there. But then I'm still going to need some sort of a, um, a board that you would typically hang through, probably new, uh, I can't remember what that stuff's called, but it's like that plastic stuff they make um, political signs out of. Um, again, I can't remember what it's called, but I'll probably have to use that in some other way. And I'm going to do a lot less number of plants per tray. Because what I found is I can grow a shitload, but it's more than I need and it makes maintenance hard. So I'm going to probably drop down to like maybe 12 plants to a tray, on the two lower trays that are grow-out trays, and do all my starts in the top tray. And the starts you do in a six-pack, conventional. Like you go to the uh, you know box store and you buy, like, you know, rhododendrons or whatever, and they're like, you know, marigolds. And they're little six-packs and in flats. Well, those six-packs, the, um, the rapid-rooter plugs fit perfectly in them like they were made to go in there. So you can pop six in, pop six seeds in, throw it in the top tray, and start your plants. Once they're rooted, they go down into a bigger cup, And it just makes everything easier. And I can still use those six packs to start plants to put out in the garden. So that's the basics of it. It'll make more sense when I show it. I'm trying the best I can for you. Um, I do have a listener this part of the COVID vaccine trials. I wanted to read you an email from him. His name is G, and this is what he said. He said, I had my Moderna vaccine phase 3 trial initial injection Thursday. 50% of people got placebo's, but since I had a variety of common side effects, including headache, muscle ache, and fatigue for a couple days, I figure I probably got the real thing. I'll know more when I get the second injection on September 10th, because essentially everyone in the phase 1 trial at my dosage reported mild to moderate symptoms like these, so it will likely kick my as much as the annual flu shots do. They selected me because I have a few risk factors, though I'm on the young side, 57 of the people... I'm 57 years old of the people they want to experiment on. I would normally do, I wouldn't normally do a clinical trial, but I read the published phase one data, an interim report on some really sickening tests on monkeys, and this vaccine looks like it will be extremely effective, approaching 100% without relying on herd immunity to kind of work like the flu virus does or doesn't. Anyway, I'm not trying to convince you it's a good idea. Just, suff- just offering to answer any questions you have about the process. I've attached the information disclosure they gave me, which provides more detail. On an unrelated topic, my company makes radars for detecting drones, and we make a drone with radar on it that captures naughty drones in a net in case the topic ever comes up. Thanks. Gee, I don't want to give the guy's name at all uh, under these circumstances. Anyway... Um, I think this is interesting, and I just want to let you know that we have somebody who's doing this. And if he has any additional issues, we'll actually have a real person really getting the vaccine tell us what's going on. I find this interesting that, like, almost everybody getting this vaccine is having side effects that seem very much like a mild case of COVID. And it it makes me think I'm probably not going to be one um, getting uh, this vaccine. Uh, It's going to be very hard to convince me to do this. Um, very, very hard. Um, I have a question here from Jake, and he said, I have a question about raised garden wicking beds. What's the best vegetables to plant in a wicking bed, and what's common to have? Is it common to have smelly water? And he goes through how he built his. So here's the thing. You can grow anything in a wicking bed, but you should think about what you grow in the wicking bed based on how deep the soil is before you get to the, the water level. So if you have a fairly shallow soil level, you probably don't want to grow things that are deep-rooted that are not going to do well if their roots get really wet. So you should build the bed to the crop. But what I've found is almost everything you grow in a typical garden does great in wicking beds. Assuming you have a good foot of soil or a little bit more before you hit the water. Okay, As far as it's stinking, right? Um the wall. If you're running a wicking bed that's a, a stagnant bed, in other words, you don't, you're not doing a flow through like I do with my system. You just keep the the level topped up. It is going to become um, anaerobic and it's not going to smell very good. This is why I actually like wicking beds to be allowed to to evaporate down. To I don't like plumbing a float valve and holding that level of water. I think by allowing that water level to drop and oxygen to flow in, and then bringing it back up before the whole bed dries out, I think you'll get a lot less stink. That's been my experience. Um, the other thing I want you to be aware with when you're doing a wicking bed with water in the bottom and a you know a filler tube, unless you have it screened some way, mosquitoes will breed in it. So the easy thing is you get the mosquito dunks, the ones that are the little pellets, and put a pinch of those pellets in there like once a week. I've found that those tend to make water that's small amounts and stagnant smell a little worse. But one thing you can do is occasionally flush through the system. So throw a garden hose in your filler spout, turn the water on, and push water through once a week. That will help freshen the water as well. Um, Those are things that you can do. Uh, He said he's had some plants that seem stunted. That could be because your water level is too high and they're, it's anaerobic and the roots are too wet. It could also be because you're not getting enough fertility. Like a lot of times people just like throw potting soil in a, in a wicking bed and they think, oh, that's good. Especially, you know, especially if you've done it for a second season or whatever. You, you need to make sure you're using good fertility. That's, that's most of the time when I see stunted growth, it is because of a lack of fertility. If you start seeing, like, chlorosis, which means you start losing the green color, fading the yellow, getting spotting, having bacterial infections, that's almost inevitably a fertility issue. Um, Last question from Matthew in Iowa today. Do you have any questions, any tips on cooking or canning older layer ducks? We're getting a few years in a duck egg thing. We're now having to deal with culling out older layers. Do you have any suggestions for cooking them? What do you think about trying to can them? Thank you, Matthew. I will say one thing about canning them. We'll deal with the fact that they're tough as shoe leather. Um, my view, this is just my view, on any duck that you didn't raise for meat and slaughter somewhere between 9 and 20 weeks of age, make sausage out of it. And when you're using a duck that was a dedicated layer, so like a Metzer 300, even Rowan's, because as they age, they, they have some muscle atrophy as they age as well. So now you've got older muscle, you've got less muscle, and you've got tougher muscle. And I've found in trying to cook them, like I've tried taking a cold bird and just plucking her breast after she's been slaughtered, obviously, and then just taking the breast cutlet out, and it's really thin. Like, I made, a, I made a duck breast last night for dinner, and it was this gorgeous pink in the middle and juicy, and, like, an old layer duck is not going to have that breast. You can do, like, a duck soup or whatever, but what i found is slaughter them however you do. I do slit the throat, let them bleed out in a cone, into a bucket, use the, bucket, the, the blood for fertility aid for soil because um, it's full of nitrogen. And then I just cut down the, the breast bone and open the skin and take the two breasts out as cutlets, push the skin back around the legs, pop the uh, the thighs out of the joints, de-joint that, pull it out, and cut the foot off so you end up with a, a drumstick and thigh portion from each side and two breast cutlets. And then you have no skin on them. They have very little fat. Ducks have a lot of fat on a layer, but they have very little fat intramuscularly. So then I would take that and and debone the the legs and the thigh. Take the bones and save them until you have enough to make them worth roasting and making a duck stock out of because It's a fantastic stock. If you want to use any of the rest of the carcass for, for stock, God bless you. I don't find it to be worth the effort uh, with a bird this age. You could pull out the breast bone, but it's going to be mostly cartilage and dissolve. So I usually just take those those leg and thigh bones and save them up until I have enough to make stock. Then take that meat and put it in the refrigerator, let it go through rigor and firm up, and then cut it into cubes, and then either cut it into really fine cubes with a knife, depending on how much you have and how much work you want to do, or put it through a coarse grinder. Mix it about 50% with fatty pork, so something like Boston butt. Do the Take the, the liver and the hearts and the gizzard from that duck or ducks, freeze that as well and put it through the grinder and mix it in with the pork and the duck. And then season it as you like and mix until you get enough emulsion of the fat to call it a sausage. And then either use it as a loose sausage or case it. If you kind of want to take it a little bit over the top, use something called Armagnac, which is a similar to cognac, it's, it's cognac from a different region. It's, it's what cognac is, but it's a different region of France. It's kind of ideal for duck sausage. A couple ounces of that, you know, to a couple pound, like an ounce to a pound, it makes it expensive, but it's very, very good. And I, I, I think that you'll find that, like, it's just amazing. It's just one of the most fantastic things you'll ever eat, and it's the only way that I can take that old bird and do something with it and be like, that was, like, one of the best things I ever ate. Anything else you do with it is kind of like a meh. It's all right. Like if you slow cook one, eh. If you confy one, eh. It's okay. It's just there's just not that much on them. So by stretching them with pork, and if you if you go buy sausage like I just described, first of all they'll never make it as good as I just told you how to make it. It'll never be quite that good. But if you buy it, you know you're looking at like eighteen dollar a pound sausage that you're making out of a cold bird. Instead of like a poor quality soup or a poor quality anything. It's it's the best thing I've found to do with them. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you if you want to help support the show and the work that we do, you can do your online shopping where? Tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, Tspaz.com. You go there, you do your online shopping, and you help us out and support the work that we do. No matter what you buy, today's item of the day is the king cooker. It's out of stock. Why would I run an item out of stock? It's going to be back in stock next week. If you order it today, you'll have it by next week. The King Cooker is this wire rack for cooking chicken wings and chicken legs. I'm sure there's other things you can come up to do with it, but it lets them hang, and it lets them cook from the hot air around them. You can use it in your oven or on your grill. I give you all kinds of ways to use it. This is a thing that when I first uh, used it to cook for my buddy David, and I posted a picture of what we ate on Facebook, his, his comment was that that thing works ridiculously good. He went home and bought two of them. They're like... I don't know, like 16 bucks, but they're on sale for eight bucks right now. That's why I brought it around again. King Cooker, K O O K E R, 12 slot leg and wing grill rack. It's on the website, survivalpodcast.com. You can always get there quicker by going to tspaz.com, which helps us out whenever you shop. And if you were on the Daily Mail, you would get an email today that would have, among other things in it, the King Cooker 12 slot leg and wing grill rack. And all the other cool stuff that you don't hear about goes on behind the scenes. At the Daily Mail. How do you get that? Go to the SurvivalPodcast.com and click on Daily Mail or subscribe. Either one will work for you. You fill out a form. You get a daily email with some bullet points in it. That's it. You can also become a member of the show. Uh, that helps us out and the work that we do in, in like really a lot. That is the way that we have been able to do this show for 12 years, the way that we do it by members like you. Um, you get a bunch of discounts and it pays back for your membership. So that's, That's the full sales pitch on that today. With that, let's go ahead and wrap the show up with song of the day. Since we beat up on the school system so much today, both intentionally and then indirectly feeding back into it with the government school system, I do believe creates learning disabilities and mental disorders. And I know you might be thinking, like, that's a little bit of a stretch, Jack. Learning disabilities, it creates learning disabilities. Okay, what do you call it when a person looks at information that clearly can be used to make a logical conclusion and no longer is capable of using that same information to make a logical conclusion. Wouldn't you call that person learning disabled? All the information necessary that a person with an average IQ should be able to read, understand, and take that information and take the common basic knowledge that they have and extrapolate something that anybody who could use common sense and could use basic logic and reason would be able to do and then they can't anymore. They could, and they could have been able to do it, and now they can't. Wouldn't you say they're now learning disabled? Isn't isn't that ex- learning disabled? Do You see what I mean? And I was thinking about what song typifies the education system more than any other song, especially when we look at it that way. And of course, it was another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. And it amazes me The people that loved this song for what it was and in their youth fully understood the brilliance of it are defending this education system today that they're a product of, and they know better. If that's you, let's stop defending the system, guys. Let's stop making our child, our children, into bricks in the wall. We have an opportunity right now to tear this system down, to tear down this wall. With that's been Jack Spirica with another edition. Of the survival podcast. Yeah. Yeah. My stack, <laughs> new car, caviar, four-star daydream. Think I'll buy me a football team. <laughs> Absolute rubbish, laddies. Get on with your work. Repeat after me. An acre is the area of a rectangle whose length is one and whose width is one <laughs> <laughs>